Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Hey, so this is part two of our Abbott and Costello episode. Uh, so if you haven't listened to part one, you should probably do that before listening to this one. Otherwise, you'll miss the groundwork and we'll just jump in in the middle and it won't all make sense. We also send us an email saying, I can't believe you didn't talk about who's on first. <laughs> because that's in part one. Talked about it back then. Uh, so when we left off in that last episode, Abbott and Costello had finally signed a movie deal with Universal Studios, making the move from burlesque and vaudeville and then radio to the big screen. And we're going to pick right up with their lives in Hollywood. The first project, which was also a screen test, was a short film called Daylight Saving that explained the daylight saving plan. The first feature film was One Night in the Tropics. Bud and Lou played uh, less than stellar detectives in that movie. The movie was already in pre-production, and there was some fancy footwork required in the writing department to wedge Abbott and Costello into what was already a finished script that was, like, not their movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it did not have like, and then two comedians enter. <laughs> uh, but they, so they had to write all that in. And once that was worked out, uh, and shooting began, a new problem quickly emerged. The comedians were so funny that the crew couldn't keep from laughing and ruining take after take, which apparently became somewhat frustrating, but also very fun because everyone was giggling. But even once they managed to get through that and the filming was completed, there was a new problem, which was editing. There was so much good material from the comedians that it was hard to edit the film down to its required 90 minutes. That ended up costing some of the stars their screen time. The decision was made to include as much of the comedy that Lou and Bud brought to the film as possible, but that meant that other elements of the plot had to be cut, which is funny considering that they had to be wedged in in the first place. This picture was ultimately considered a flop, but Abbott and Costello were a hit with the audiences and the critics. Costello was apparently bothered at the time, though, that their success came at the expense of the film's star, Alan Jones. Their second film, which was hugely popular, was Buck Privates, which came out in 1941. And it was made during a time of upheaval at Universal, when infighting among executives was really common, as the company struggled financially. And at the same time, Lou Costello recognized that he and his partner were in a position to negotiate for more money, which they did. By the time they agreed to do Buck Privates, they had signed on to a four-picture deal at $50,000 a movie plus 10% of the profits. This was an arrangement that was unheard of at the time. The studio thought they'd never have to pay out on the percentage part of the deal on B-Pictures. But Abbott and Costello were still doing radio in addition to their other work. And they had a huge following by the 1940s. Those listeners were really ready for a movie starring their favorite entertainers. And the studio allegedly went through more than two dozen writer-producers before finding one even willing to throw in their lot that starred a comedy duo that had come up from the burlesque circuit. But when Alex Gottlieb got the call, he was allegedly the 27th person that they talked to. Uh, he had the opposite reaction. He was a fan. He knew who Abbott and Costello were uh, because they still weren't really well-known quantities in Hollywood, even though in many other places they were. Uh, and he was super happy to helm this project. He actually told the executive head of the studio, within a year, I'll make Abbott and Costello stars. Gottlieb was 100% correct. 
but privates cost $180,000 to make. It set box office records and grossed millions. It also made Abbott and Costello household names. It was in theaters the same time as Gone with the Wind. And while the drama retained the number one spot, Universal's little B-movie still managed to attract an audience consistently. The studio, wanting to capitalize on this moment, started shooting a new picture with Abbott and Costello just weeks after Buck Privates opened. And they just kept working from that point on. Throughout World War II, Abbott and Costello made more than a dozen films with Universal. But as time wore on, there was a growing friction between the two men. There were times when they could be heard arguing in their trailers, clearly irate with one another, But despite whatever personal problems they were having, they were always entirely professional on the set. And some of that friction was financial. Bud, as we mentioned in the previous episode, got 60% of the take, while Lou got 40 in their initial bookings. That had been, as we said, standard practice for a, a straight man in a comic on the burlesque circuit. And at one point, though, their management agency, which was William Morris at the time, had shifted that split to 50 50 But as their fame really started to grow and Costello was being told by various admirers and hangers on that he was really the star of the act, he began to feel that he deserved a bigger portion of their pay as a duo. Lou Costello was willing to take a stand over this issue. He threatens to break up the act completely if he didn't get 60%. He also wanted their name to be changed to Costello and Abbott. And while Bud Abbott did give in on the money split, Universal stepped in regarding the name change as they had bought the now recognized Abbott and Costello, not an act with any other name. That 60-40 split in favor of Lou Costello remained the arrangement for the rest of their time as partners. This also seemed to catalyze an odd financial competitiveness in Costello. It wasn't enough that he was making more money. He had to show everyone that he was. He had to have a bigger house than Bud. Like, he kept expanding his own house to be bigger and bigger. Uh, he had to have a bigger pool than Bud, and he had to have a glitzier side business. So when Bud Abbott bought a restaurant, Costello bought a nightclub. Additionally, both of the men had a fondness for gambling, and so they wasted untold sums outdoing one another and then also playing cards. A singer who once toured with them said that she saw them lose $35,000 in one game, an incredible amount of money in the 1940s. Yeah, there are many tales of like people who witnessed their games or were a part of their games and were just unable to really process how much cash was being thrown around incredibly casually. And as all of this was going on, though, they continued to work and they were launching additional projects. The Abbott and Costello show was a radio program that they started on October 8th of 1941. And that was successful right out of the gate and it ran for years. They also entered into an agreement with Universal and MGM that allowed the pair to appear in films for MGM, although it was never the same experience that they had had at Universal. On the Universal lot, they were stars, but MGM never really embraced them with quite the same enthusiasm, so the jobs just were not as fun. Yeah, MGM was considered a more prestigious place to work and to make a film, but uh, they just didn't seem to care as much about having uh, Abbott and Costello as as Universal did. And when the United States entered World War II, uh, there were, of course, actors who famously volunteered for military service, such as Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable. At this point, Abbott was too old for service, and Costello had medical issues which kept him from serving. But both men were wanted by the USO, and they were more than happy to perform for the troops. 
1942, Lou's wife, Anne, was pregnant with their third child, a son named Louis Francis, and he was born on November 6th. He was nicknamed Butch. Lou was so excited to have a son that it basically reinvigorated his life and his work. That same year, Bud and Betty adopted a son, Bud Jr. In February of 1943, Bud and Lou toured the country selling war bonds. And this was an interesting time because they were still being competitive, but the competition between them came into play in what ended up being a positive thing, uh, as they both hustled to outdo one another to see which of them could raise more money. And as the tally in in any given location where they were fundraising would add up, the duo would perform sketches for the crowd, sort of like a, a reward system. Like, if we get this much, we will then do who's on first. If we get this much, uh, we'll do this other bit. So they were alternating between sales pitches uh, and comedy as the day went on. And both men really were truly dedicated to the war effort in this way. And at one point, uh, they even agreed to perform in a kid's backyard when he and his friends asked them to and raised several hundred dollars towards the war effort to book them. We're about to get into a really difficult period in Lou Costello's life, so you might want to grab a hanky. But before we get to that, we will take a quick breather and have a word from a sponsor. All of that constant travel and performing eventually caught up to Lou. It really took a toll on him. He developed rheumatic fever, and he was confined to bed rest for several months. It actually took him close to a year to fully recover. And while there were films already shot that were released while he convalesced, the weekly radio show had to go on hiatus without him. Lou eventually was upgraded from the bed to using a wheelchair. And while he loved spending time with the kids, this downtime was really making him restless. Finally, in November 1943, Costello was cleared to return to work. Unfortunately, uh, the same day that Lou returned to work on the Abbott and Costello radio show, the family experienced a terrible tragedy when their infant son, Butch, drowned in the family pool. Lou and Bud's manager, Eddie Sherman, drove Lou home. He had been asked to bring him home. Nobody wanted to tell Lou the news over the phone. And despite being utterly heartbroken, though, Lou insisted on performing on the radio that night. And at the end of that show, Bud Abbott gave a statement. Here's Bud Abbott's statement. Ladies and gentlemen, now that our program is over and we have done our best to entertain you, I would like to take a moment to pay tribute to my best friend and to a man who had more courage than I have ever seen displayed in the theater. Tonight, the old expression, the show must go on, was brought home to all of us on this program more clearly than ever before. Just a short time before our broadcast started, Lou Costello was told that his baby son, who would have been one year old in a couple of days, had died. In the face of the greatest tragedy which can come to any man, Lou Costello went on tonight so that you, the radio audience, would not be disappointed. There is nothing more that I can say except that I know you all joined me in expressing our deepest sympathy to a great trooper. Good night. There was really significant fallout in the Costello family, understandably, after Butch's death. Uh, the baby had been left unattended in his playpen near the pool due to some confusion over which of the many adults in the house was watching him. Anne, as the baby's mother, was blamed by many of the members of the Cristillo family. And this was not, to be clear, a long-distance hostility. When Lou had moved to California to be in movies, he had moved his entire family with him. So Anne, who was grieving, had to endure their judgment daily. Lou himself changed significantly after the tragedy. 
He'd always been a happy-go-lucky, outgoing, and friendly person with everyone in his life, but after the loss of his son, he developed a temper and became very quick to anger. It was apparent to everyone that Lou was not the same man they had known before. Lou had a bracelet engraved with Butch's name that was welded shut on the wrist, and he remo- he refused to remove it. And he and Anne uh, were never able to truly recover 100% as a couple. Lou did harbor feelings that Anne had been negligent, and she developed a drinking problem after this tragedy. And it seemed that people were so swept up in Lou's loss as a father and suspicion about whether Anne had contributed to the accident that Anne's loss as a mother was eclipsed and it was never fully acknowledged. In 1944, things started to pick back up again. Lou started raising funds for a youth foundation that he wanted to set up in Butch's name. Abbott and Costello starred in a film called In Society, which was hailed as one of their best projects. In 1945, Who's on First became part of a movie titled The Naughty 90s, and it became cemented by that point as one of the era's comedy touchstones. While it had already been popular on the radio, its use in film brought it to an even wider audience. And in that new format, it was just one more way that it was part of the uh, sort of pop culture of the time. And as they worked, their partnership did continue to work. Lou was fantastic at ad-libbing, and Bud was so smart and so quick that he could not only follow him, but also bring him back around to the needed elements of the script. They tended to not be very strict to their script at all. And to anyone who had never seen any given scene as it was written, it was so smooth the way that the two transitioned in and out of scripted elements versus ad-libbed that most people weren't even aware that there was improvisation or where it started or ended. That professional tension between Abbott and Costello had started to slip away as the Abbott family had rallied around Lou and Anne in their grief, but that started to return between the two of them by 1945. Both Lou and Bud had become rougher with one another, and the jokes they traded sometimes took on a dark, hurtful tone. Yeah, there are some instances where people talk about how some of the, the, like, comedy, physical comedy bits, like slaps, started to seem a little more, like, real slaps and not so much, like, clowning around, uh, which I can imagine would probably be very awkward for someone watching it play out. Uh, they did split up a few times, but only temporarily. Neither was ever as good without the other. At one point, they just stopped speaking entirely outside of work situations. So they would do their routines or whatever the script called for. But when the jokes were over, they didn't act interact at all. They just walked separate ways off set. And that was that. Uh, just the same. Neither ever said a bad word about the other to the press, although uh, the movie studios and the radio producers were certainly always worried there would be some big blow up in the press, but it never happened. And neither would ever seem to tolerate anyone speaking ill of the other either. When Bud offered to help raise money for the Youth Foundation, that rift was healed for a while. The Lou Costello Jr. Youth Foundation opened on May 3rd, 1947. It was a massive complex with all manner of sports and activities for under- underprivileged kids. Lou was as hands-on as he could manage at the foundation, and he stopped by to see the kids and play ball with them as often as his schedule would allow. Lou and Anne had a fourth child, Christine, on August 14th of 1947. And the combination of being the baby of the family and being born after the loss of Butch really made her a treasured and by her own admission, very spoiled child. 
After the war, the Abbott and Costello material started to get a little stale for movie audiences. They were still making movies at a rapid, nonstop pace, but they were using some of the same jokes over and over. There was also a turnover in the leadership at Universal, and while there was still interest in Abbott and Costello because of their money-making potential, the entertainers weren't particularly happy. And to make matters worse, the films Universal was making with the pair got more and more ridiculous. Uh, in 1948, they starred in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, followed by a flurry of other monster movies. As you'll recall, Universal owns most of the, the big classic horror monsters, so they put them in lots of things. Uh, these all actually did relatively well at the box office, despite a number of arguments in the production process uh, with the directors on set over like what bits should or shouldn't be in. It was basically just not a fun time making movies. In 1949, Bud and Betty, once again, their family got bigger. This time they adopted a baby girl named Vicky. The first half of the 1950s uh, were full of new projects for Abbott and Costello. They traveled to the United Kingdom on a comedy tour, each bringing their families and an assortment of assistants and helpers. They had to battle with Universal over the rights to the 16mm copies of their films, which the studio started selling without their permission. The comedians filed a $5 million lawsuit, and Universal, wanting to avoid a court battle and the publicity that would follow it, settled by paying out more than $2 million to Abbott and Costello. And though they were, at this point, uh, recovering from the pain and the tragedy of Lou's loss and had seemed like they had had, you know, about six years at this point to bounce back and they had managed their settlement with Universal, there were more financial problems ahead. And we're going to talk about those after we take a quick sponsor break. So as the 50s stretched on, there were money troubles for both men. The gambling had really gotten out of hand for Lou and Bud. And then uh, Lou stopped all payments to their manager, Eddie Sherman, believing that Eddie had cheated them in various deals and taken a bigger cut than agreed upon. Sherman sued both of the comedians, and he won the suit. So not only did they have to pay out $400,000 to Sherman, but their bookings and consequently their incomes suffered significantly without Sherman making deals for them. So finally, with Abbott's sign-off, Costello approached Sherman and asked him back, but he also made it very clear that he didn't like him. There was also the problem of oversaturation. Director Charles Lamont said of their flailing film efforts, quote, I believe their popularity at the box office declined because their pictures were being mass-produced one right after the other and then re-released along with their new ones. Universal was desperate to get out of the red, and they thought they could quickly make money by banking on Abbott and Costello, but in doing so, they really damaged the team's longevity. Within Hollywood, uh, Lou did himself, and by extension Bud, no favors when he supported Senator Joseph McCarthy in his search for potential communist propagandists within the entertainment industry. And it got to the point where Costello would carry petitions around, asking fellow performers to sign them and swear they had no ties to communism. So this irritated some colleagues uh, and outright offended others. And longtime writer and friend John Grant actually never worked with Abbott and Costello again after they quarreled over the petition. You'll remember that John Grant helped them write Who's On First and worked with them pretty much throughout their careers up to this point. And it started to become a known thing that if actors wanted to work on a project with Lou Costello, they were going to have to sign this petition. 
Meanwhile, on January 7th, 1951, they had started hosting the Colgate Comedy Hour on television. Since it was once again a new media with potentially a new audience, uh, they went on with the classic bits and sketches for their first show. It went so well, they hosted it for the next three years. Then in 1952, they began their TV show, The Abbott and Costello Show, which ran on Friday nights. In October of 1952, Abbott and Costello signed a contract with Universal that covered 11 of their earliest films and it established a participatory interest in the profits of those films. So according to the contract, Edward Sherman got 10%, Bud Abbott got 41.5%, and Lou Costello got 49.5%. In 1953, they made Abbott and Costello go to Mars. That same year, both Bud and Lou were turned in to the Internal Revenue Service as tax evaders. It was devastating for both of them. Costello had been far, far too loose with money. In truth, he probably thought he had more than he really did. Bud Abbott had to account for literally every item he owned as an asset. A complete audit revealed that taxes had been filed improperly by sloppy or maybe unscrupulous accountants, and each man owed about three-quarters of a million dollars in taxes and penalties. Yeah, there are a lot of accounts of how uh, particularly Lou Costello would spend money in ways that just didn't create a paper trail, Uh, possibly on purpose, but more likely than not just because he liked to spend money like crazy. Uh, there's one story where somebody brought him a check for $10,000 to a set, and then he placed a phone call right there on the set and said he was going to buy the yacht and basically sent that check directly to the people he was purchasing the yacht from. So there was no real trail of him having ever received that money, which created a problem. And there were lots of issues like that that just weren't documented. But people were saying, no, I paid them that money, yet it was not showing up on their tax returns. Uh, while there was small salvation, however, in that it was determined that fraud was never intended, uh, which would have resulted in steeper penalties, there were still loads of deductions on tax forms that were completely unsubstantiated by any records and things like unreported income, like I just talked about. Tax attorney Arthur Manella managed to negotiate the amount that each man owed down to uh, $375,000. Uh, and there was additional back and forth over income from gambling, which was eventually settled through a legal team. So after years of extravagant living, it was all catching up to both of them. Bud Abbott once commented that he didn't get rich until he was in his 40s and that after having been poor for so long, it felt like he had to live it up. Both men still indulged their gambling habits after all this, and Lou, who had a number of relapses in his rheumatic fever, was having more and more frequent attacks. And, of course, that film that they had been working on at the same time, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, was considered the worst movie that the duo ever made. Lou Costello sold his lavish home to help with a tax bill, and he moved his family to a ranch he owned in the San Fernando Valley. This move was rough on the whole family, and Anne developed a nervous rash, and her drinking continued. Yeah, in many ways, the kids liked it. Like, the ranch had horses. Lou bought a bunch of racehorses and other livestock and over the years, and so they got to kind of have this fun ranch experience. But they also missed their incredible house that had been really the seat of their lives as long as the kids could remember. Uh, So it was very stressful, just the same. 
Uh, the comedy team made two films with Universal in 1955, Abbott and Costello Meet the Keystone Cops and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. By that point, they were once again in a state where they didn't talk except during their scenes. And in 1956, Bud and Lou starred in their last picture together, titled Dance With Me, Henry. They did a last stage booking together in Las Vegas at the end of 1956, and it did not go well. Bud was off with his timing, and it made the act really laggy. Yeah, that's, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more at the very end, but that's one of the few times that most people will say that there was a problem with Bud's drinking that had actually caused an issue on stage because normally they, they were very professional. Who's on first was added to the baseball hall of fame in 1956. And it's often reported, uh, that Bud Abbott and Lou Costello are the only non baseball players to be inducted into the hall of fame in Cooperstown, New York, but that is not accurate. Uh, so when you see that statement, it's, it's a little bit uh, misunderstood. A gold record of that bit of the sketch who's on first was added to the museum's collection, as well as a framed copy of the dialogue of the sketch, but Bud and Lou were not inducted. In 1957, Abbott and Costello broke up the act for good. There were a number of factors that went into the decision. Bud's drinking had really worn on Lou, who was dealing with, uh, you know, his wife having the same problem. Lou also wanted to pursue a serious acting career. According to Bud's wife, Betty, Abbott was deeply saddened by the whole thing. And they never gave one specific reason that it ended. But the people around them also were like, there was never like one big blow up fight or anything. It just kind of came to a point where things were not working anymore. And Lou uh, started working right away on Steve Allen's show, often doing old bits that he had done with uh, with. Bud Abbott with different people subbing in for Bud's parts. And he traveled with the Steve Allen show to Cuba in 1958 and he had crowds following him everywhere he went. He made a film in 1958 titled The 30 Foot Bride of Candy Rock, which was by all accounts terrible. You might not have suspected that from the name that the process. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, the name just sounds absurd. The process of making the movie was also terrifying. He had to act alone on a blank set so that his image could be superimposed over the scenes that had already been filmed of this giant woman in the title. Yeah, he felt like he didn't really know what to do just standing there by himself. It was really, really scary. <laughs> at least at least give the guy a tennis ball on a stick to look at. That's what they right. <laughs> That was before John Noel and ILM started doing such things. Um After he appeared on television in an episode of General Electric Theater, Lou got offered another role on Wagon Train, in which he played a drunk. Uh, And while he struggled with staying on script, something that had never been an issue when he had Bud to corral him back to the right spot, he still gave a really strong performance. And that role led to a Broadway producer approaching him about another role in an upcoming play. Lou had to sell the ranch in 1958 while still working on the tax bill, and he moved his family to an apartment in Sherman Oaks while also building a new home. He also appeared in a burlesque-style Vegas show very similar to the ones he and Bud had been playing at the start. Anne had a heart attack not long after they moved to the apartment. She was hospitalized for a time, but she did recover. The last week of February 1959, Lou was taken to the hospital where he died on March 3rd. But Abbott didn't know about his former partner's illness until after he had passed. He later told Lou's mother, Mom, I don't know why they didn't tell me. 
Maybe if I'd have known, I could have gone up there and helped Lou. My heart is broken. I've lost the best, the best pal anyone could ever have. Bud was also one of the pallbearers at the funeral. The 30-foot bride of Candy Rock came out after Lou died, and his widow Anne, after seeing the bomb, told friends this would have killed Lou if he had seen it. Two years after Lou's passing, Bud Abbott decided to make another go of it in show business. He paired with uh, Candy Candido, a multi-talented comedian who had worked on the 1950 movie Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion. The magic that Abbott and Costello had just couldn't be replicated, though, and the act fell flat. People were not particularly interested in seeing Bud without Lou. No one, he said, could ever live up to Lou. And after that, Bud Abbott retired permanently. He had a series of strokes beginning in 1960, which made his health progressively worse. He died of cancer on April 24th, 1974, with his wife of 55 years and their two children at his bedside. Perhaps the most amazing aspect of the humor of Abbott and Costello was how clean it was, despite their early years as a burlesque act. Lou Costello's daughter, Chris, wrote in Lou's biography that there wasn't an Abbott and Costello routine that, quote, couldn't be done in a minister's parlor. They never thought they had to be dirty to get laughs, and that's one of the reasons why their films were so popular. One other thing that may surprise people uh, is that as good as Lou and Bud were as a team during the height of their fame and as well as they got together, they got along together on screen, they didn't hang out as friends really outside of work. Uh, their wives were quite close, particularly so after Anne and Lou lost their son. We mentioned the financial strain on the Abbott and Costello relationship, but even before they started quarreling on who deserved the most money, they didn't really socialize outside of the theaters they played in or the lots where they were filming. They were just very different men, both personally and professionally. Bud would have been happy to stay on the vaudeville comedy circuit, but Lou wanted to be a Hollywood star. When filming pictures, Bud needed alone time in his dressing room when they weren't filming, but Lou hung out on the set and made friends with the crew. I would have been in my dressing room. (laughs) I know it. Well, and I think it's also... um. It becomes really sort of heartbreaking that there are so many quotes of Bud talking about how Lou was his best friend when I think Lou felt like they weren't always that particularly close. Um, you know, it's just they just had a very different view of how the whole relationship worked in some ways. And part of their social incompatibility uh, is also sometimes chalked up to the fact that Bud was more of a drinker than Lou. Uh, Bud had epilepsy from the time he was a young man. Starting in the 1920s, he started having epileptic attacks. And according to director Arthur Lubin, who worked with the comedians on many films, Bud told him at one point that he drank to help him sleep because the epilepsy gave him such anxiety that he was otherwise never able to rest. Abbott and Costello performed together for 22 years, and during that time, they managed to transition from burlesque and vaudeville onto radio and then to both the small and big screens. Their smart guy, stupid guy act, which was a common format at the time when they started, had such a chemistry that even when they were recycling material, it kept audiences laughing. Lou was generous. Uh, he would pay for groceries to be delivered to poor families at Thanksgiving, or he would hand, he, there's a story of him handing money to a kid that was a boxer and was not very good at it, and it turned out he was just doing it to help his parents make ends meet, so Lou gave him money to kind of tide him over till he could find a more suitable way to earn money. Um, 
there is also the the one thing that people often say when the name Lou Costello comes up is like, wasn't he a thief? Didn't he take stuff off of sets all the time? He did. Uh, and there are differing thoughts on why he did that. Some people would say, well, he felt like he wasn't getting a fair contract at Universal ever. So he would just take pieces from the set. Others just thought like he hated to see something go to waste, like to go into storage right after a film got made. So he would just take it home. We don't know why, but he did take some stuff from sets. Um, but he was also this very generous person. But this blithe generosity and his gambling problem made for terrible money management, uh, as evidenced by his run-ins with the IRS and his inability to show what had happened to any of his money and his subsequent financial hardships trying to get caught up. Lou Costello Jr.'s Youth Foundation still operates as the Lou Costello Jr. Recreation Center in East Los Angeles, although it's now run by the city. Yeah, they had to turn it over to the city to run at one point because they just couldn't afford to keep it going on on its on their own. Um, and because of the high level of fame that this duo achieved and Costello's big personality contrasted by Abbott's more private style, there have been innumerable stories about them over the years that have been overblown or relayed without context. For example, tales of Lou Costello's explosive behavior, uh, which there's one particular biography of him that's written and it really makes him out to be a monster. But those stories are literally from the time right after he lost his son when he was still very deeply in grief and really not, um, you know, his normal self at all. Similarly, Bud Abbott's drinking problem was a very real thing. But, uh, and there were reports that said that he would appear on stage so inebriated he could not perform. And most of the people close to them have said that's patently false, uh, with the exception of that one final show that went so poorly. Um, however, that, that may have been the last straw for Lou, that particular incident. So it seems this clearly both men did have their demons, but they remained professional in their career obligations. The reality is that these two comedians were complex people with lives and problems, and they were also celebrities, which invited a lot of gossip and speculation about their lives away from the public. In the foreword to the book, Lose on First, which is the one written by Costello's daughter that we've referenced several times, comedian Steve Allen wrote, quote, no list of great comedy teams would be complete without the names of Abbott and Costello. They left a legacy, and fortunately, we can still see their films on television today. And I'm certain they've won a new generation of fans. So that's our very long two-parter on Abbott and Costello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because I love them and it's self-indulgent. Well, and we also, uh, this is hitting in a time in our calendar where we just talked about something awful. So it's nice to have something that's about comedy. Yeah, even though there's some tragedy in there, you know, at the, at the end of the day, there's a really lovely legacy of laughter that we we owe them for. So, uh, and, you know, I love to talk about comedians because I think they're, usually incredibly complex and interesting, and that's the kind of stuff I could just read for days. Do you want to do listener mail? Yes, let's do listener mail. Okay, this one is also pretty light. It is from our listener Donovan, 
He says, hello, Tracy and Holly. My name is Donovan, and I've been listening to the show for a few years now and really appreciate the work you do. I'm a huge history nerd, and I was introduced to podcasts by my brother when he showed me Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And as much as I love that show, the time between episodes kills me. Uh, but it leads me to looking for other history shows, and once I found Stuff You Missed in History class, I was hooked. I do a lot of driving, and I prefer podcasts to music when doing so, so your show output rate is a lifesaver. Uh, anyway, long-winded intro aside, I was listening to the episode on Kudu which I loved as I'm very interested in the Mongols. And you mentioned the highly inaccurate portrayal of her on the Marco Polo Netflix series and how the wrestling was not the type she would really have been doing. Uh, when you referred to the rolling on the ground as Greco-Roman, uh, that's not correct. In reality, Greco-Roman style doesn't have a lot of groundwork. Most of it is done from the standing clinch using throws, takedowns, slams, and suplexes. So it's actually closer to Mongolian wrestling than you'd think. Most wrestling on the ground comes from styles like amateur, collegiate, freestyle, or, depending on the goal, jujitsu. I know it's a small thing, but I thought I'd mention it anyway, because in addition to being a nerd about history, I'm also a nerd about martial arts. Anyway, sorry for the long and dumb email. Keep up the great work. That's not a long and dumb email. It's great. Uh, and that's info. I I just said that off the cuff, and I was wrongo, wrongo. You can tell I don't know anything really about wrestling, um, except what history books have told me, which is not always accurate. Uh, we also got a similar correction from our listeners, Zach. So thanks to both of you, because that is a, a fixer that's worth having. Uh, so now I will learn more about wrestling and not make that mistake again. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at housetoveworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as at Missed in History. That means on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, or Pinterest, you can find us as at Missed in History. Uh, you can also find our, sh- our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where we have a back catalog of every episode of the podcast that has ever existed going way, way back. Uh, uh, long before you would be hearing my voice or Tracy's voice on it. And we also have uh, show notes on some, and now we have consolidated show notes, so they are on the same page as the show page for any episodes in the recent past and going forward. You can go to our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Type in almost anything you're curious about into the, the search bar, and you're going to find a wealth of information and entertaining articles and videos and perhaps quizzes and all manner of things to keep you busy. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 